Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the podcast that exists to help companies rethink how they win new business. Each week, I sit down with marketers, creatives, and storytellers to break down the commercial strategies that actually work with the modern day buyer. Let's get started. Today on B2B Better, I'm very excited to be joined by Eric White, founder at Revealed. How are you doing, Eric? Great. How are you, Jason? I am fantastic. I'm really glad to be talking with you today about something that is a little bit of a mystery to me, jobs to be done, JTBD theory, um, and a little bit about your work around the concept. But before we get into that, tell me a little bit about you and what you do. Absolutely. So background as a uh, study computer science in college, I was involved in enterprise software development for uh, a long time, a couple of decades almost. Um, but there are two different calibers of programmers. There's the top 10% and there's everyone else. And I was everyone else. And so I had to find different ways to survive in that field. And what I really enjoyed was the human side of enterprise software. So I liked the figuring out what should be developed, figuring out what should not be developed, uh, figuring out how to create value. And the problem that was especially interesting to me as I approached the end of that chapter of my career was how do you align value for users, people who have to actually spend their time using the software, customers, employees, vendors, whomever, how do you align value for them with value with managers who have to manage and oversee their activity with executives who are, who are paying for this and, and looking for a return on investment? And so that process was a very interesting one to me. And it was as I was struggling with really figuring out how to excel in that area that I came across jobs to be done. And it really shed a new light on how people are motivated and how they make decisions. And really, essentially, I made a very quick pivot into uh, being less of a developer and being more of a market researcher and, and a marketer. And so I entered into marketing uh, feeling a little bit like a fraud because I didn't know what I was doing or what marketers did. I had, I had watched Mad Men, but that was about the extent of, of what I knew. And so... Yeah, career change started about five or six years ago, maybe 2015, 2016, and launched with um, launched a business. So I met um, Alan Clement, who was at, was at the time working on a book about jobs to be done. At the time, there was very little written about it. And so it was a frustrating area to get into uh, because there just wasn't good information. People were rehashing the same types of things. And I came across Alan and he was really trying to push the envelope on how to think about jobs to be done. And he and I uh, had a very quick rapport. We're wired very differently. Um, and I think wired differently in complementary ways. So his book came out. I, I was a collaborator on it. He was the driver of it and the author of it. I'm not a co-author, uh, but we, we spent a lot of time talking through the ideas. And when the book came out, people started contacting him and saying, hey, this book is great. Why don't you come and help us introduce this thinking into our organization? And that was how we started our business. And so we started Revealed um, at, at about that time, just almost by accident, right? There was no business plan. We weren't thinking about, you know, we weren't strategic about how we were going to start it. People just wanted help and we, uh, we were interested in, in helping. So the challenge that we help people with is, is growth. And what we have found is that a company can't create growth unless something changes. And so if your growth is acquiring new customers, that means what, what you have to do is you have to be able to change how people are making decisions. They're making decisions one way now. You need that pattern to look different um, in the future. 
And so what we really do is, you know, and this is where the name came from, is we try to reveal the path to uh, new consumer behavior so that uh, people can create growth. And sometimes that looks like making small modifications to existing buying journeys. And sometimes it looks like creating an entirely new buyer's journey for new offerings or in new markets. I really love that story. And, and you kind of said a word there that kind of sticks with me, which is the word fraud and how when you kind of transition from being an engineer into the world of marketing, you, you perhaps felt a little bit out of place. Um, certainly that's something I've felt in my career and even to this day. And I think a part of it is because, you know, marketing is, is hard to measure um, in, in some instances. And in some cases, um, it is as much of an art as it is a science. Um, and that must have been quite a tricky transition for you coming from the world of engineering, which I've never been an engineer and you tell me if I'm wrong here, but perhaps it is a little bit more binary, a little bit more black and white, you know, it's something either works or, or it doesn't work. Is there anything you'd say to that? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. When pro programmers have a, a little bit of the God tendency or a God mindset where they, they create these universes that they are in control of, or they try to exert some sort of control over it. And if there's a problem, then all you have to do is just look hard enough at the code and you're going to be able to find and, and fix the problem. And there are some analogies to marketing, but marketing is a lot more about influence. It's a lot more about making predictions and experimenting and trying things and figuring out how they're going to work, at least performance marketing or demand generation or product marketing, which is the realms where I tend to play. And so it turned out as I, as I got into it that every you know, everyone wants the same thing. It's, it, things are very unpredictable. And there's, when you're trying to create a niche for yourself, it's helpful to be able to say, I'm a marketer who thinks like a programmer, right? And so there's, there's certain just things that make you, you, and, and that's what made me, me. And I think that's what's, you know, helped me at least get started in making that transition. I still have a lot to learn, which is why a podcast like yours is great because I can learn a lot. So we're here today to talk about jobs to be done, which for me has always been something of a mystery, as I've said. Um, when we first started talking a couple of months ago, uh, you, you mentioned the book, um, When Coffee and, and Kale Compete, and, and you contributing to it. And it's actually a book that's been sat on my bookshelf for three or four years. Um, it was recommended to me by uh, a friend of mine who worked in our, in our product team. Um, and it, I bought it. I was very keen to read it. But as I'm one to do, it ended up on my big pile of books to read and more books just kind of fell on top of it. Um, I did do yeah. a little bit of research into the theory, uh, you know, online um, where, where I could. And the word that comes to me is, is milkshake um, because I believe there is a, you know, a well-known anecdote from the founder or, you know, the original person who conceived of the jobs to be done theory around milkshakes. Um, and I think McDonald's milkshake specifically could you tell us a little bit about that in the context of explaining what is jobs to be done? The milkshake story is interesting because it does illustrate something very important about jobs to be done. And so what happens is as businesses, we become optimized around our products and the creation and manufacture and sales of those products. And so what happens then is on the creator side, we tend to look at the market through the lens of what we do and, and how we can optimize. And so Jobs to be Done allows us to actually come and see things from the other perspective. And so the story of the milkshake was, I don't, you know, and, and it's lore at this point. And so I don't know what's, I don't know what 
actually happened and, and what didn't happen, but the lore of it, which is great and, and helpful, is that when, when they started studying people who were buying milkshakes, they started to find that a lot of people were buying milkshakes in the morning, which was a real head scratcher because you think of it as a, as a dessert product. And, but when you start talking to people about what, you know, what's the story of buying a milkshake in the morning, they discovered that people who spend a lot of time in traffic wanted something to cure their boredom. And so the milkshake wasn't about satisfying hunger. It wasn't about anything really other than just help me make my commute and this unpleasant traffic a little bit better. And so when you look at it from that perspective, you start to realize this milkshake isn't competing against fruit juice or smoothies or hash browns. The, the milkshake is really competing with books on CD. It's competing with having, you know, taking meetings from your car. And it, so it gives you this whole different perspective of how do we deliver value to customers along a dimension that they're actually using to, to identify value in the product. And so it's almost like this mind-bending perspective shift when, when you start to look at it through that lens. And so the milkshake was just a really powerful, tangible illustration of that. And they would say things like, based on this insight, people started making straws a little bit thinner and making the milkshakes a little bit thicker so that it took a little bit longer to drink. And it was a little bit more of an active experience. And you can really start using your imagination and see all the different places that you may, that you may take it once you start to realize that there are these different jobs to be done that people have for the product maybe that you didn't see before. So jobs to be done, if I could try to explain it at its kind of you know, its core principle is really looking at a product in a way that explains how that product is helping a user, be that a B2B user or a B2C user, solve a particular task, to solve a particular job that may run counter to its either original intention or the perceived intention of that product or service by its creator. That seemed a little bit ham-fisted, but have I, have I kind of got it right there? I think you're capturing the essence of it. And the only thing that I would add to what you said is that when we look at things through that perspective, our competition starts to look a lot different than we originally thought. And so, yeah, it, it abstracts a little bit the demand and value from the customer's perspective from the specific functionality of the product. Understood. How can this be applied to marketing? So marketers who are listening to this podcast, who are curious and know a little bit more about jobs to be done, what does this look like in practical terms and how they can be better at their jobs? That's a great question. Let me, let me take one just brief step back. And I think one of the challenges that people have with jobs to be done is that the term is used in a lot of different ways. And so what we need to do for the purposes of this conversation is separate out job to be done the theory from job to be done the thing that customers have. And this can be a little bit of a difficult question for me to answer because at heart, we're scientists. And because we're scientists, we're constantly asking this question of what is jobs to be done? And we're constantly getting new information and we're learning new things and studying new things and really trying to figure out what is this thing? And, and it doesn't seem to us like it's settled science yet. And so the way that I may describe the theory today is going to be perhaps a little bit different than tomorrow. And that's just because it's an exploratory sort of work. So um, I don't think we're here to talk about theory though. So let's talk a little bit about how this idea can, can be used. The number one thing that 
I think product teams, marketing teams, executive teams, sales teams want to be able to do is make predictions about what's going to happen if they take some course of action. If I'm a salesperson and I'm on the phone with you, I'm making decisions constantly in the moment about how I'm going to describe the product, how I'm going to talk about your needs, and how I'm going to attach those two things. So jobs to be done, I think, from the sales perspective, and, and if I then take a step back away and I say from the job of the marketer who does sales enablement, what it should do is it should always be helping us make predictions that say if we speak about our product in a certain way or if we advertise it in a certain place, this is the type of response that, that we would expect. So the number one thing that we've seen about jobs to be done is it should help us make a prediction. And it should help us make that prediction without the use of historical data, right? And that's one of the reasons that even, even bringing up the idea of theory when we're talking about something practical is important. You're, when you get on an airplane and you're flying across the ocean, your pilot is making predictions about what's going to happen when she gets to the other side of the ocean, not based on historical data, but based on theory about you know, current weather conditions and what that means about what's going to happen. And so, you know, we're always, you know, we're always sort of, we're a move, you know, our, our market is a moving target, we're a moving target. And so this idea that we need a theory is, is really important because it helps us make those predictions. Now, what the theory is going to help us predict, if I get any more specific, is it's, it should help us predict consumer reactions and consumer decision-making if, if we put something different in front of them. How will consumers react if we change our price? Usually the static answer is they're going to buy less of it if we increase it and they'll buy more of it if we decrease it. But you know, and probably everyone knows listening to this, that sometimes a higher price signals something to customers that actually leads to more demand. And so there are a lot of different factors when customers are thinking about hiring a product for their job to be done. So that's another thing that, that really should help us is jobs should let us run experiments and, and, and assess and begin to s start to get some sense of how changes we may make to our offering are going to be reacted to once consumers actually see it. Um, it should help us predict if we want to target a new ICP, right? We, a lot of the work that we do is uh, the companies that hire us want to find a new use case or a new ideal customer. And they want to see if that's something that they could legitimately sell, or maybe they want to create a new product. So Unlike lean startup, what jobs to be done, what I really hope marketers take away from it is almost compare jobs to be done with lean startup. So lean startup, when you are thinking about doing something, you're going to run an experiment and you're going to finish that experiment and the answer comes back and it's very binary, yes or no. What lean startup doesn't tell you and which jobs to be done can help, can help tell you is why was it a yes or why was it a no? And you can start to see things on a continuum. So in other words, We've worked with a lot of people who they say, we've got this new product idea. We think this customer segment would be interested, but every time we run an experiment, it fails. And we'll come back and we'll say, well, did it fail because you had the wrong ICP? Did it fail because you put the wrong message in front of them? Or sometimes, and this is what usually happens, it probably failed because you didn't communicate it in a way that the consumer even understood. And so all jobs to be done should help us see the entirety of the consumer reaction to the entirety of our offering. And that's what big picture, I think marketers should take away and see as the opportunity that jobs presents them.
So you start out with a theory. I'm curious, how do you, what, what, you know, what's your advice to marketers in terms of kind of measuring those outcomes? Um, what are the kind of some of the practical things that they can do to actually establish whether their hypothesis, their theories were correct? Right. So when, um, how do I say? So a lot of times when we come in and work with companies, we do some baseline research and we say, just, just like the pilot, right? So the pilot going from, you know, whatever Paris to New York is looking at current weather conditions in New York and sort of the trends and, and what's happening and where the wind's blowing and, and then make some predictions. So a lot of times when we come in, the first thing that we're doing is just simply getting a baseline understanding of what are these underlying motivations, right? What are, what are the reasons that people are buying the milkshake? What are the real reasons? And, and how are consumers really perceiving it? So that it's, an, it's a lot of times important to start the development of a new theory with a good baseline understanding of current market conditions. Now, once you do that, we've, we've developed some different methods, which I'm happy to, to talk about and share. They're not proprietary. But essentially what we like to do is run what we call simulated sales calls. And so if we're working with a B2B company and the B2B company is thinking, hey, there's this new ICP that we should be able to attract. Well, we'll say, that's great. We live in a world, we live in a day and age where it is very easy to find people who fit an ICP, right? You can, you know, you can specify whatever search criteria that you want, whatever situational criteria you need for us. Um, I'll just use us as an example. For us, we really like working with the CMO or the CPO, and it should be a series B to series C funded company pretty easy to find them. But what we also want is we want to find people who are thinking about some sort of a new offering, right? And so we can start to develop this situational and demographic understanding of the ICP. Well, anybody in the world will tell you anything for $100. You can, I can literally get people to just have a you know, 30 minute conversation with us, say, well, you know, we're going to pay you $100. What we'll do during that conversation then is we don't interview them. I should, never, I should never call it interviews when we're talking about this looking in the future realm. What we're really doing is we're doing very early scale sales calls. And we're talking to them about their needs, just the way a good salesperson would start by putting the focus on them. What are their needs? How are, what's their life like right now? What struggles do they have? What ambitions do they have? And we, we start to, so we root our conversation in, in all of that. That brings up emotions, that puts people into the situation, even if they're not actively shopping, that emotional connection to the conversation is formed as we're starting to talk about these needs and struggles and, and ambitions. From there, then we, we introduce the product and we do it in a very um, methodical way. And so almost, I mean, a, a landing page is the best analogy, right? So there's, a, there's some sort of hero image and hero message Right below that, there's a, a few key illustrators of functionality so that we make sure people understand what the, what the offering even is. And, and I would almost stop there. I would almost stop there and say, every new offering that we've ever helped people work on usually gets held up in that realm. Because what we need to do is what we should be able to do in those conversations is assess, does this person understand what we're talking about? In other words, do they comprehend it? And the second thing is, do they find it relevant? Is it, is it relevant to them? And those first two things, if we, if we don't have those locked in, it doesn't matter what we say in the rest of the conversation, people don't care. And 
so we have found a lot of times with new offerings, that's that's where things really get stuck. So number one thing is, you know, this we we were really testing for comprehension and relevance. Those are kind of the fast thinking part of decision making. After that, then we can start to look at some different factors. How does the person come to trust this product or not? Did, right? Do they believe? Do they believe the promises? So what can happen is in an established company, we've got folklore about how our product creates value. We've got you know three or four or five testimonials or quotes or whatever that just constantly get put up on the website. Well, when you're trying to do something new, probably those old quotes don't work. And so we can, as we're going through this deck that we're that we show people, we'll ask them about, you know, how, you know, what do you what do you think about this? And they'll say like, well, I don't know why they would put, why do they have the chief product officer on there talking about it when when I'm a CMO? Like that just doesn't. I, I'm just making stuff up. But this these are the types of things, right? So what we're what we're really studying, we can't say at the end of this conversation if the person would buy this new offering that doesn't exist or not. But we can start to assess, did they understand it? Did they find it relevant? Did they trust it? Do they, do they observe some value for money? And, and, and things like that. And then that sort of feedback loop then is great signal back to a good cross-functional team to be able to make decisions about, sometimes the decision is like, we just, there's no way we're going to get this thing to market. Sometimes the decision is, oh, we need to tune the message or we need to tune the social proof or the packaging isn't quite right or the price isn't quite right. And so it starts to give you a lot of good information about what sort of levers you need to pull to be able to either go out and experiment or move the project forward or honestly sometimes have justification to kill it. On that point, um, we've talked a lot about hypotheticals. I want to ground this in a real world mm. example. Good, um, yeah. You've told me about a company that, uh, you and Revealed have worked with in the past um, called Dream, who were looking yeah. at breaking into a new market and enlisted your services to try and figure out uh, how they could best activate that market. Um, but the results that they were looking for were perhaps uh, the results that they actually ended up uh, getting weren't, weren't the ones that they were looking for. Tell me a little bit about Dream. What does the company do? What did they want to achieve? And ultimately, what happened? Such a great story. Dream makes a, they're a French company. They make a headband that you wear while you sleep and it tracks. I, I don't know the science behind it. They, they say it like it tracks your brain waves. Uh, I've seen data from it. It tells you how many minutes you slept on your back versus your right side versus your left side. And it, it gives you feedback to help you improve your sleep. Now, the product was being sold in Europe primarily to people who had medical level sleep issues like insomnia. They had grown a lot selling to that population, but they could start to see the growth was going to taper off at some point. And so they started asking the questions about where's the next horizon of growth going to come from? And so their thought was transition the product from a medical device into a consumer device and start selling it in the United States. And so that's where, that's, that's the pathway that they started going down. These are really good people. I mean, they're the CEO, the CMO, both brilliant, extremely successful in what they had done. They had built an incredible team. They got a, their head of product, they poached from Apple. They had a head of marketing that they had poached from Google. I mean, who doesn't want to, 
leave you know the valley and go live in paris for a couple of years right like it sounds like everyone <laughs> sounds like a great thing to do but i mean they had put together a really impressive team but they were stuck they were stuck like this thing that they wanted to be true this growth opportunity that they wanted to exist they just weren't getting anywhere with it and the type of language they would use is you know we're running in circles we would try to do customer interviews. We wanted to get customer input, but we'd finish the interviews and everyone was just hearing what they wanted to hear. And so when they came in to work with us, it was really a help us figure out, help us figure out how to get this messaging and get this offering right. So we went and spent a weekend in Paris and ran some of these interviews that I was just, or, you know, simulated sales calls, like what I was telling you before. And what became clear over the course of the week is that they had a big problem with what they were trying to accomplish. And the big problem is the well-known issues that the United States has with its healthcare system. So people, when they saw this product, they saw a medical device. What Dream wanted people to see is a, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or an Aura Ring or a Whoop band. But what people were actually seeing was something that it almost seemed like a prescription. So the, the decision to buy products like that, Americans tend to defer to physicians and insurance companies, and they just, they just do what they're told. And it, it, it became very evident that there really wasn't a clear pathway to creating the perception of this as a consumer product. I sense, I don't know this, I have not heard these words. I sense that coming into the project, they knew that. And they were struggling to come to grips with it. And the reason I think that is because as we got through the project and, and it became evident, this wasn't, you know, I mean, we were saying it out loud, but I think they were all seeing how difficult this is going to be as a consumer product play. We, we also started hearing some interesting things from people. And the interesting things that people were saying were, this is pretty cool because I just, um, in, in the product explanation that we were giving consumers, one of the things was a reference to something like an, an insight that said, I don't know, it's highly likely that you, Jason, have sleep apnea. You should really go get that checked out. And some of the people that we spoke with said, you know, it's really interesting because I, I know I've been snoring. I haven't been sleeping well. I probably, it's very possible that I have apnea. I really don't want to have to go spend a night in a sleep lab unless I absolutely have to. And so people were living with this problem. And so we started to say, that's interesting. There's some interesting compensating behavior where people aren't comparing it to the Apple watch like they had hoped, but they were comparing it to a very expensive night in the sleep lab. And through some realizations like that, Dream realized that there was a pivot ahead of them. And the pivot was from a B2C device, which they had always been, to a B2B product that would be sold to insurance companies, sleep labs, who, who knows, but it was going to be more of, more of that. Now, it's easy for me to tell you this, but this was a really hard thing for them because these, these excellent people that I was telling you about, they went to Dream because they were passionate about getting a consumer product to market and they didn't want to play in the B2B space. And so this became a real identity crisis for the organization. I mean, it was a very difficult transition. And so I don't feel like we at Revealed participated in the decision-making process other than helping to make clear for them 
that this was the right direction for the product. This was the right place for the product to go to find growth and, and impact millions of lives like what they wanted to accomplish. I've seen firsthand how hard it can be for B2B businesses, particularly established B2B businesses with vested stakeholders, make decisions that run contrary to what they originally believed. Mm -hmm. I'm really fascinated to get your opinion on, you know, why you think it did take so long or it was so difficult for dream or maybe even other companies that you've worked with to get to that point where they make those decisions or come to those realizations. I mean, surely they're doing their own customer research research. Surely they've got, you know, product designers, developers, CPOs, what have you, who are out there picking up the phone and, and speaking to end users why can't they get to that decision or get to that realization themselves? I think there are two things. And I think there are two things. The, the easier one is that I think what we have come to know as validation is very difficult. You can validate a need, you can validate a problem, you can validate that your product can solve that problem, but it becomes very difficult when you start playing in the dark art of, can you generate demand? Is there demand for this thing that you put out and can you put it out in a way that people are going to hear about it, pay attention to it, come to trust it, find value in it and, and buy it. And you mentioned very early on about how marketing is part art and it's part science. And I think, I think the demand generation for something new is very much dark, mysterious art. And, and that leads me to my second point. And, and I call this the growth trap. And the growth trap is companies that have a really successful product or a couple of really successful products organize themselves around making those products successful. They become... They're, they're, people are incented based on the success of those products. People are educated about the market through those products. You know, when, when Dream first started out, it was guys that knew a lot about sleep, right? Like sleep research scientists, you know, people, every, and everyone, you know, in a startup, everybody's doing everything. And so everyone's got this really good intuitive understanding of the market. Well, when you start bringing in heads of product from Apple, they're coming in because they know how to run a product, not because they know about sleep and sleep science. And so I say all that to say that the organization becomes very much built around making a specific product successful, which you, in, in complexity science terms, I think you would call that, or in mental model terms, maybe you would say there's this explore versus exploit algorithm. And companies are usually built to exploit proven opportunities. They become very dependent upon data and, and they're just, they're, organized to exploit an opportunity. When it comes time to explore, they don't have the same incentive systems set up. They don't have ways of making decisions without good, concrete, clear data. And so it can be, it can, what ends up happening is the explore process starts, but there's no off-ramp, right? There's no, there's, there's no clear thing that says, well, how do we, how do we get off of that? And so I think those are really the two the two big challenges. It's a dark art and um, just, yeah, the, the, the growth trap and the way that companies are organized. What ultimately happened with, with Dream, uh, particularly in regards to their, into their entry into the US market? 
Well, you can go to their website, B-R-E-E-M, and you'll see that what they've ended up starting to pivot towards is selling their products to sleep labs and, and specifically for use in clinical trials. And so what they've come to understand is there are a lot of people, and we're talking like big names, you know, NASA, sports teams. Um, I mean, you know, people, there's, there's a lot of research work being done in the field of sleep right now. And they realize that they have the biggest impact and to um, get their device on mo more people's heads, they really should be operating through this clinical trial channel. And so they pivoted from being something that was a direct to consumer to being something that was being sold to you know, labs and insurance companies and scientific research organizations. The CMO left, the CEO left, head of product left, the head of market. You know, the, I think the company has had a huge, uh, huge amount of churn, turnover and, and churn and things have changed a lot, but the company's still uh, yeah, there. The company's still there. And as far as I know, they're thriving, doing very well. That's the important thing. I think sometimes when you have That's these, important. you know, est established companies who have a sense of direction and where they where they want to go, and it's hard for them to to let go of that idea, even when the data is staring them in, in the face, or they're unprepared to have the difficult conversations and make the difficult choices in regards to where are we investing and how we're structuring our business. Um, you know, that, that is what can lead to a company ultimately folding, you know, maybe not overnight, but certainly over the long term. Um, and, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's really tough. Um, what I love about this theory is so much about marketing, as we've already alluded to, is perhaps hard to measure or, or hard to prove, and particularly for marketers who are trying to make business cases around which direction we need to be going in, in terms of our product or how we're positioning our product. You know, this gives them a really actionable um, mechanism in which to, to build that business case internally. For marketers who want to know more about jobs to be done or further educate themselves on the theory, where can they go? Um, there are a few different things that I should say about this. So um, the first is everyone should be aware that there are different interpretations of jobs to be done. Right. And so there's um, there's a gentleman by the name of Tony Olick, and he has a process called outcome driven innovation. And he has a slightly different take on jobs to be done. We tend to fit more in the realm with Clay Christensen and, and Bob Mesta. And so if you're going to learn more about jobs to be done, just be aware, save, you know, save yourself some headache and, and frustration and just understand that there are two different interpretations. If you want to learn more about our take, um, when coffee and kale compete, um, I believe it's just when coffee and kale compete.com it's, it's available on Amazon, but it's also available on that website. It's a free PDF download. That's the book that Alan wrote about five or six years ago. Um, our company's website revealed.market. We have some information about our, our different offerings and specifically, you know, maybe our services, this more forward looking thing. We're trying to get more information out about how people can do it on their own. Um, but we, we have some information there. And then Alan and I are both very active on Twitter. I'm at Eric M. White. Alan is just at Alan Clement. And we have a new book coming out. Um, as you and I talked before we hit the record button, there's a, there's a book coming out this year. We've done a lot of work. Alan specifically, um, and again, me as a, a contributor, done a lot of work on trying to develop the theory out in a way to make it a lot less abstract, uh, to make it a lot more concrete, a lot more actionable, and a lot more practical when marketers try to go out and, and look at it. 
fantastic. Well, I'll drop all the links to your social profiles and to the website and to the link to the um, to the book in the description of this episode. Before I let you go, Eric, I ask this question to everybody who comes on B2B Better. What do you think is going to be the biggest change in how B2B companies market themselves over the next five years? Over the next five years, to me, it seems that the trend has become that B2B marketing is a lot more fun than it was five years ago. There's a lot, a lot more channel. I was just listening to someone today talk about how they're using TikTok for their, for their B2B promotion. And so I think what we're going to continue to find changing in B2B is this realization of a truth that has always been there. And that is that people buy products, companies don't. You've got you've to figure out how to make the product click for the person. You've got to figure out how to sell influence. And in, in B2B, it's so exciting because the person who's showing up in your CRM is part of a decision-making team. And your job is to equip that person to be your, your salesman. And so I think the, the continual personalization and having fun with B2B and making it something that's a little bit more focused on the specific buyer rather than the company seems to me like the trend that we're heading in. Well, I can't wait to see you on TikTok. And when you do get on there, I'll make sure I drop the link to that in the description of this episode as well. But until <laughs> then, Eric, thank you very much for coming on to B2B Better today. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you want to learn more about how to win new business through modern day marketing, head over to my website, www.jasonrbradwell.com for a ton more interviews with marketers, creators, and storytellers on the strategies that they're deploying to create demand with B2B buyers. It would also mean a lot if you could leave a review of this podcast, hit subscribe, or share it with a friend. Bonus points for all three. It's all massively appreciated. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason R. Bradwell or connect with me on LinkedIn. See you next time.